Chapter 13, Haken Solves the Crimes. In the, in the last chapter, we, we saw that the Hope Proposition Shard and his buddy O'Reilly, the bartender, saved Shard's life by bashing the guy over the head with a liquor bottle. Uncle Joe is angry because it's his agent, and his lawyer Bone comes to the attempted assassin's rescue. In this chapter, we're going to find out why Shard thinks Bone defends mobsters. Shard plugs in his suspects to Hakon's relationship with his son, the problems with what he calls nest holders, and man's relationship to reality to pin his murderer. So this is chapter 13, Hakon Solves the Crimes. Wednesday morning, headquarters. Shard spent the better part of an hour writing up his report on Pinelli's attempt to shoot him. He put particular emphasis on O'Reilly's heroics. Shard hoped maybe the sheriff would give the barkeep a commendation, which would be reported in the Sun-Times. Shard could only imagine O'Reilly's reaction to seeing his name and face in the paper. He signed off on his report and turned his attention to finding a camel, when Brian Bones knocked on the open door. Bone didn't look anything like Shard expected. His dark blue suit with thin blue stripes and his brilliantly polished black wingtops marked the uniform of a professional. He was tall, six feet, almost as tall as Shard, with hair almost as blonde as Johnson's, sparkling blue eyes and a fair complexion. He was a walking advertisement for his northern European antecedents. Mr. Bowen, I presume, Shard said, with only a hint of a smile. You presume correctly, Lieutenant Shard. I'm here to talk to my client and arrange bail. You have every right to talk to Mr. Pinelli, but I doubt very much he'll be out on bail any time soon. Sheriff Stutzenberger is against it, and has so informed the judge. Your client, Mr. Bowen, attempted to kill me last night. The Sheriff's Department and the judge look askance at attempts to murder law enforcement officers. With all due respect, Lieutenant, I have only your word that my client tried to do this. I shall have to hear his side of the story. I assume that even up here, you adhere to the proposition that every man is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law? Oh, yes, Mr. Bone, but Mr. Pinelli didn't shoot at you. You didn't stand there and look down the barrel of his pistol. You weren't holding a glass of very tasty single malt that Mr. Pinelli shot out of my hand. I was. He's guilty as hell, sir, and I have a witness to corroborate my testimony. But I'll escort you to the interrogation room where you may interview your client. I'd love to hear his take on this afterwards. After Shard returned to his office, he lit up the camel he'd found in the drawer of the interrogation room's table and reached for the phone to call Hugh at the Rochester State Police. Instead, he enjoyed his camel and thought that if Iorio sent Pinelli for a second try, the big guy the other night must have been his best man. Shard needed to know his full name to complete the picture for Hugh, and he knew where he could get it. He picked up the phone and made a different call. Ruth, my love, it's been a long time, he said. This is the fellow who's had a crush on you for 15 years. Tony, it's so nice to hear your voice after all that time, Ruth Scarpelli said. Wrong guy, my love. This is the hulking woman you so admire. I know, Tom. You didn't stop when you were here last week. How'd you know I was in Albany? I have a big family, remember? We Italians stick together. When a cop from the sticks comes to visit my old friend Alfie, we sit up and take notice. Under any circumstances, I would have stopped just to look at you and wolfed down one of your delectable meatball tunnel sandwiches. 
How do you expect me to keep this place financially afloat when you don't eat it in here anymore? You could make a profit if you served only your family members, but I need some information. I'm so poor now I'll have to charge you for it. And by the way, Hope called the other day. She cried during the whole conversation. I suppose you know, Lawman, that there's, she's still in love with you and is sorry that she ran out on you. She wants you back, but according to her, you turned her down. Just between you and me and my St. Mary's sodality medal, I can't say that I blame you. Thanks, Ruth, Shard said, and proceeded to tell her about his two recent attempts on his life. Jeez, Lieutenant, you got to be careful. You make enemies easily. That appears to be the case, Ruth, but I think I know who my enemy is, Uncle Joe Iorio. I seem to remember you know him. I know of him, but I've only met him a couple of times. I'm curious to know why Alfie and his thugs call him uncle, when he's actually Alfie's brother-in-law. He can't be both, can he? Unless, of course, you Italians do things differently. Funny, lawman. Uncle Joe's sister was younger than Joe, way younger. She must have been an afterthought. That makes Joe old enough to be an uncle. But let me be serious. I told you before, Uncle Joe is dangerous. He's not someone to fool around with, so watch your back. I found that out. What I need to know is the name of one of his enforcers, a really big fellow with size 16 feet. I vaguely remember that Uncle Joe called him Sam when I was in his office. Ah, that must be Sam Pinelli. He has a reputation for being a killer. Rumor is that he learned his trade as a sharpshooter in the Marines. Pinelli? Does he have a, does he have a brother named Joe Pinelli? Ah, at last you're starting to untangle the threads that bind all good Italian families together. But you're not quite there yet. They're cousins. Why? When Sam failed to kill me, Iorio sent Joe to finish the job. Luckily, he failed too. Who will he send next? I don't know, Tom, but I have no doubt he has someone. Wonderful. As long as we're playing the game of who do you know, would you happen to know a Utica lawyer, Brian Bone? We all know Bone. He keeps my relatives out of jail. Why? First of all, is he Italian too? With a name like Bone, are you nuts? I thought maybe his mother might be. Have you seen the guy? He's so pale he probably hails from above the Arctic Circle. Yeah, I thought so when I met him about a half hour ago. How did an Anglo like him become a mob attorney? I thought you guys sent your second sons to law school to keep the fathers out of jail. Sometimes we do, but Uncle Joe's no fool. Bone brings him instant respectability because he was unlucky enough not to have been born Italian. Explain that. The story is that Bone was born to an old Utica money family, textiles I've heard, went to posh boarding schools, then Harvard got a law degree from Yale. Can't do much better than that, can you? No. He came back here to Utica where he joined an old established practice, inherited its menu of gilt-edge clients, the knitting companies that remained, a chemical firm, ABET, Utica Foundry, General Electric Light Military Electronics when it was going, the local junior college, Eckert's, Iorio's trucking firm, and God knows who else. They brought him big bucks and exposure to everyone in town who mattered, including Uncle Joe. Bones in the country club, sits on boards all over the city, is a wheel in the local Republican Party, a pillar in his church, and a power in the Chamber of Commerce. Besides, he dresses well. Then why is he a mouthpiece for the local mob? His firm can't be too happy with that kind of client. Lawman, it's obvious why you couldn't get into law school. 
He's the senior partner in the firm now. On paper, he represents Iorio Trucking, but I'll bet Uncle Joe pays him handsomely to represent all his employees. Eckert's? He represents Eckert's? For how long? Haven't the slightest idea. I only know what my relatives tell me. Interesting. Anything else you've heard about him? I know he's married and has three daughters. I've also heard he's one philandering bastard. Has a reputation for screwing his clients and their wives. I suspect he doesn't fool around with Uncle Joe's, though. <laughs> Bet not if he has any sense. One other question, Ruth. Have you ever heard of a guy named Tim Winter? No. But even you can figure out he's not Italian. Unless he has some connection with my family, or is single and hangs out at the Iroquois, I'm not likely to have noticed him. Why? Just a name that keeps popping up in the murder case. Listen, Lieutenant, I know that you work for the government, but I have to make a living. I've got to make a tub of meatballs. A tub? You make them in a tub? Only way. Goodbye and stop in the next time. I'd love to see you now that you've worked hope out of your system. Shard gave silent thanks for people like Scarpelli. He wondered if her parting line was an invitation for more than meatballs. He always thought that she had had an interest in him, and if he'd stayed with the state police in Albany, they might have gotten together. But like all his romantic interests, distance and a host of other factors worked against him. Maybe he was destined to die a lonely bachelor. He picked up the phone again. Hugh Tom Shard! Just as he finished explaining his suspicions about Sam P Pinelli, Bone knocked on his door. Come in, Shard said. How'd it go with Mr. Pinelli? Well, I must say his story was at odds with yours. He swears the bartender viciously attacked him when he stood up to go to the bathroom. The guy hit him over the head with a bottle and knocked him out. When he came to, he was tied up on a dirt floor in the cellar where you threatened to kill him. He wants me to charge you and the bartender with assault and battery and unlawful restraint. I think he has a case. What did he say about the gun he pointed at me? He said it fell out of his coat pocket when he was attacked. He's a felon, you know. Does he have a permit to carry a firearm? I'd be most surprised if he does. I don't know. I'll have to check on that. One last question. How did the pistol manage to shoot the glass out of my hand, especially if it had its safety on? Mr. Spinelli said it must have fired when he hit the floor. It was a lucky shot. Yeah, right. I think that even you, Mr. Bone, must find this story full of holes. The bartender, Mr. O'Reilly, doesn't make it a habit to clonk his customers with bourbon bottles. It would be deleterious to his business. I think you know Mr. Pinelli is feeding you a load of crap, and that such charges against O'Reilly and me wouldn't have a chance in court, particularly after the jury got a gander at your client's rap sheet. Bone headed for the door. I wouldn't be too sure of that, Lieutenant. I'm going over to court to file a bail petition for my client. I wish you luck, Mr. Bone. Shard suddenly realized he was hungry. He saw that snow was still falling, a little more lightly than in the past few days. He headed out to Schuyler's for Mrs. O's Beans and Frank's. Good thinking food, he thought to himself. Wednesday afternoon in Shard's office. Full of dogs and beans, Shard stopped by his lamppost, stood smoking against Zwitter's wall, and watched the lazy flakes dance about. Cars crept past, and the town square across the street was almost waist-deep in snow. A dog, probably dizzy, had left telltale signs of his path across the otherwise pristine snowfield. It was a beautiful sight that freed Shard's mind from the nettlesome details of staying alive and encouraged it to wander afield to more important things, such as why Uncle Joe was trying to kill him. 
Periwinkle and Johnson were already in his office, and she offered him his desk chair. Shard took it without comment. You have that look on your face again, she said. What one? The one that indicates you're somewhere else talking to people no one else can see or hear. Yeah, Shard said, as he looked straight through her. Out of habit, Periwinkle and Johnson waited for a revelation. Didn't take as long as usual. Our problem is Hakon, he said, apropos of nothing. His sergeants waited him out. The damn Saga riders didn't tell us enough, he continued. They left it to us to tease out the important details of the Jarl's actions, much like we have to do with our cases. It would have been a lot easier, he began, and then trailed off. Periwinkle and Johnson sat quietly. I don't know if he killed his son. That's the problem. I'll never know. But I'm going to take a guess, and based on how those maniacs acted, I say he did. Okay? Okay, boss, Periwinkle said. That means he had a problem with him. Maybe the kid threatened his yarldom, or something. Though it seems to have been a little young for that. But back then, nobles killed their children for all sorts of reasons. But he was his son. Is it easy for a father to kill his son? I don't know. But forget that. It's unanswerable. Right, boss, said Johnson. It's all too simple, Shard continued. Nothing is simple in this world, not even how we perceive reality. Oh, God, Periwinkle thought, he's really headed up to the cliff now. And that's the important point here, Periwinkle. Perception of reality. You know what reality really is? No, sir, Periwinkle answered. It's what we think it is. Simple, huh? And we act on that. The other, less believed options are shimmers. Shimmers, Johnson asked? Yeah, fanciful. But don't confuse this. Shimmers can become reality. But then they cease to be shimmers. And that might be exactly what we have here. Oh, good, said Johnson. What Hakon thought was true was more important than actuality. But the saga doesn't tell us what he thought. Not even what he did because of his perception of reality. That's exactly the point that unlocks this case. If not, it gives us a perception of a different reality. We're all ears, boss, said Periwinkle, who didn't have a clue what he was talking about. This question has been nagging me. It originates in our inability to attribute motivation to his actions, especially the ones we don't know about. Johnson caught Periwinkle's eye and seemed to ask, What's he talking about? We'll have to come up with our own realities, as we do in every case, and act upon them. My reality, 1,200 years later, is that Akon killed his son. Had to. Simple, huh? Not so simple as why. In other words, his view of reality. I prefer more complicated realities, you know. Succession into the Jarlim is too simple a reason to murder a son. My sense of reality is that he killed him for some of the same reasons our killer murdered Denise. And there you have it. Pretty simple, huh? Neither Periwinkle nor Johnson could think of an intelligent reply, or even a stupid one. They recognized, however, that Shard had not returned from wherever he was. So they awaited his next incomprehensible observation. Sometimes his meanderings made sense. Sometimes. The key to all this was his yarldom. But it had to do less with succession than with legitimacy, Shard continued. The legitimacy problem was probably related to sexual affairs he might not have been able to prove, just as in our case. For some reason, though, he thought they were true, and that became his reality. Thus, if he killed his son, he probably also murdered the concubine who birthed him. Why? because he thought that the boy was not his son. 
In other words, he believed the mother had cuckolded him. Thus, his jarldom was fated to fall into the hands of a pretender. Someone had fouled his nest, a motive for murder that has stood the test of time. And I think we have it here in Leiden, or Rochester, or Utica. It's the key to our case. With that, Shard's eyes suddenly focused on his surroundings. Hi, boss, Periwinkle said. I followed your musings until the very end. A foul nest is the key to our case? Based on Hakon's presumed ver version of reality? Have I got this straight? Yep. Knowing what's real here, all we have to do is throw suspects out of the foul nest. The last one sitting in it is our man. Or woman. We can do that right here in the office. But you have omitted the most important part, boss. Whose nest is it? Ah, you're approaching it backwards, Norseman. When we know that, we have the murderer. We only have to know who's been in the nest and who threatened the nest holder. Nest holder, Periwinkle asked. Is that a new term in the criminal justice manual? It is now. I just coined it. Soon it will become famous in the annals of justice, like Doc's new medical terms. The phone rang. Shard ignored it, and his colleagues followed suit. Who builds nests, Periwinkle? Female birds. Mostly females of all species. Yes, Shard replied. That's a working definition of reality we're dealing with here. Okay, then what? What do you mean? What happened then? Who do the nests attract? Mature males, Johnson offered. Sure, seeking the services of the female with the nest. For pleasure and propagation. Both are important, right? But what's the reality if the male succeeds at one, but not the other? In that case, he would probably get only the pleasure, Johnson said, because he can't impregnate it without it. You're getting warm, kid, Shard said. Who's our nest holder? Denise, Periwinkle offered. Right. Now all we have left is to figure out who fouled her nest. But you're missing an important fact here. Denise didn't have any children, at least that we know of. So the killing can't be over an illegitimate child, Johnson said. Absolutely true, Norseman. That leaves us with pleasure, or more likely, the lack of it is a motive. Some male whose version of reality was that another guy was getting what he wasn't. Make sense? Jealousy, boss? Periwinkle asked. One of the most powerful of all motives, said Shard. We need to return to that schematic Periwinkle created the other day. Add Bradley and discuss the possibilities. We don't have a clear view of reality when we checked it before. Now we do. We put Denise in the nest and look at the males who hovered around her. Let's start with Pressman. I all thought about him for a few moments. He's probably the weakest possibility, boss, Pink Periwinkle said. We can't even prove that he knew Denise, and his wife, as far as we know, isn't having an affair with anyone. It's hard to see a massive attack of jealousy there. I really don't think he's involved in this at all. I agree he's the longest shot, Shard said except for the fact that he might be Tim Winter, our next jealous suitor. He's one of our most puzzling suspects, said Johnson. He's as elusive as a saga character, maybe more so because we don't know his story. But didn't he admit to you he was with Denise the day we think she was murdered, or at least the day before, Shard asked? That's what he told us. But he didn't indicate that he suspected Denise was involved with anyone else, Johnson said. More important, Periwinkle added, I think she's such a cold fish that if he did find she was otherwise engaged, he'd just retreat into his invisibility and figure out a less complicated way to pleasure himself. 
The last thing he'd want is to become involved with a governmental agency like us that would delve into his personal life. He's an avoider, boss. Plus, there's a more fundamental question of whether he really exists. Now, there's a wrinkle for your reality assumption. True, Shard said slowly. We can't entirely eliminate him, but hope in my sense of reality tells me he's a very minor possibility. That brings us to you, boss, Periwinkle said. I knew we'd get there sooner or later. It's been twenty years since I've been near her nest, maybe three years since I've seen her. Besides, as assumptive as my conceptions of reality might be, I know that I didn't kill her. I hadn't a single reason to be jealous of her activities. Hell, I didn't even know what they were. We believe you, boss. I hate to say it, but someone who doesn't know you as well as we do might conclude that you're still a strong candidate. I agree with you, Norseman, except as I've said, I know for a fact that it's not true. Therefore, that leaves us with Bradley and the possibility of several scenarios. Based on the premise that he suspected someone had followed her nest while he was having an affair with her, you agree? I suppose, Johnson said. Good. Then who followed her nest? That brings us back to two, no three, who we've already eliminated, says Periwinkle. It does, but now they all beg different questions. We eliminated them as murderers, not as lovers. The question is, did Bradley see them in his nest, or, just as important, believe they were in it? But how do we get inside Bradley's mind, boss? Periwinkle asked. We can't. We can only examine the evidence we have from outside his belief system. But remember, as with Hakon, we all act, act in accordance with what we believe is true, not necessarily what is true. So, we come at this from the other way. Bradley's action reveal his notion of reality. See what I mean? That makes some sense, boss. Start us off, Periwinkle said. Well, this gets complicated. Just what we need. More complications, Johnson said. Winter's the biggest one. He admitted to following Bradley's nest. But we don't know if he exists, if he's Pressman or Bradley. My gut instinct is that Winter is fictitious, a cover someone used to hide his affair with Denise. If so, that eliminates one source of jealousy, since one of her suitors was Winter. Moreover, Denise knew who he was as well. Winter may have killed her, but my view of the truth is that it was one of the other two. I hate to say this, boss, but it could be the other three, Periwinkle said. You could have been Winter, or more important, Bradley, or Pressman could have thought you were. That means they were jealous of you. I hate to toss you back into the mix, but you've been there from the very first. That's an interesting possibility. Forget whether I had any sexual connection with Denise or killed her. It's more important that perhaps somebody thought I did. Foul the nest, I mean and was, therefore, jealous. That makes Bradley the most likely to have been jealous of you. He ran off with your girlfriend, and then for some reason suspects you of having an affair with his nest holder, to use your term. He may believe that everywhere he turns he finds you in the nest before him. If Hope told Bradley about Denise and me, that makes it even a stronger case. And do you remember, Periwinkle, that when you came downstairs at Denise's house, you mentioned that you had found birth control pills and condoms in her bathroom. You said that some pills and condoms were missing. She had also started to write a Dear John letter. You surmised then that she might have been having two affairs, one perhaps short-term. I did wonder about that, boss. 
She may have been more promiscuous than we thought, but a short-term affair when she was traveling with Bradley or Winter? Maybe a series of one-night stands? We'll never know. But it's not as important as what Bradley believed she was doing and how he reacted to it. Insanely jealous, Perry Winkle asked. Possibly, Shard said. I assure you that I didn't figure into her current romantic adventures. But what if Bradley thought I did? It's a possibility, Johnson said. It might also explain other elements of the case. In a jealous fit, he strangles Denise, and then he decides to point the blame on the man he believed fouled her nest. You. He gets away with murder, you go to jail for life, and he eliminates the man he believes fouled both his nests. Neat, huh? Worse, boss. What if he believed that you were having an affair with Hope? Periwinkle asked. If Bradley had wind of her affair and didn't know whom she was seeing, wouldn't it be logical for him to include you on his list of suspects, especially in a fit of anger? Hope told him that, sh that she wished she'd stayed with you, or worse, that she'd take you back on a heartbeat. If she did, she must have made it doubly sweet to wreak vengeance on both women and the man who had vexed him for years. Now that's jealousy. And it fits neatly with how I think it played out in the Ramada Inn that Saturday night. Presumably, they were in or on the bed, and maybe Denise wasn't interested in having sex with him. If Bradley had recently argued with Hope, and she had also refused to have sex with him, he may have felt his manhood threatened. Then Denise's refusal in the Ramada brought on the Hakon in him. Bradley slapped her around a little, and she resisted. That enraged him, and he began to beat her. In their struggle, he put his hands around her neck and squeezed. Too long and too hard. Maybe he didn't intend to, but... But he still had to get her body into your garage, boss. How did he manage that, Johnson asked. I've given that some thought, too, Shard said. But if he killed her Saturday night or Sunday, and I found her Tuesday, he didn't have much time. But if his reality was twisted by what he thought I was doing with Hope, it might have been natural that he decided to bring her to my house. I don't think he would dare not do it on Sunday night, because I was at home. He would do it either Monday or Tuesday. But since we know he spent only one night, Sunday, at the Cascades, I suspect he did it on Monday while I was at work. But you'd think the whole neighborhood would have seen him, boss, Periwinkle said. It was broad daylight, after all, and he had a purple car. Ah, but the clouds were low and dark all day, and it snowed hard. It was gloomy. I'd guess he drove to my place Monday morning, or say nine, ten o'clock. If he backed up my driveway and my tire tracks, he would have been very close to my carriage house door. If it were unlocked, it would have taken him only a moment to take Denise out of his trunk and carry her into the carriage house. He then ditched the car on the street behind my house and walked to the motel to catch a ride. When I got home, the snow had accumulated in the tracks and maybe his footprints as well. I didn't notice any. Ditto for Tuesday. If that's the way he did it, he got lucky. No neighbors noticed the car, a man carrying a corpse, or anyone near my carriage house. He was lucky for sure, Johnson said. So you see, if it's all based on Hakon's sense of reality, I think he's our man. He had motive, Shard said quietly. And I would add one more observation. Bradley must have found it ridiculously easy to set me up. He knew my history and habits. If he had a key to her house, all he had to do after he killed her was go there and scatter incriminating evidence around. A photograph Hope had kept, for example. She might have told him I smoked unfiltered camels, not exactly a popular cigarette anymore. Bradley types the incriminating letter, plants the condom, steals a few of her birth control pills, and maybe even buys the expensive lingerie. Oh, I have doubts about that.
Most guys ain't very comfortable in lingerie stores. The cat named Tom bothers me, though. It appears she got it before she left for Vegas. Bradley may have just gotten lucky there. Maybe she simply named him for his most obvious parts. Or maybe Bradley named it for her. Anyway, I don't think the case hinges on the cat. It's about sex, Hakon, and perceptions of reality. You make a persuasive case, boss, Periwinkle said. Shard looked out his window. It was dark, but he could still see occasional flakes. The storm must be waning, and it's time for me to visit my moose, he said as he pulled on his coat and walked out of the office. I'm not so sure that his assumptions are sound, Johnson said. And another point, Norseman. I still think he's withholding information about his relationship with Denise, then and maybe even now, Periwinkle said. He never replied directly to my questions about that. He isn't going to tell us, and I think that means he did sleep with the woman, sometime, somewhere. That could make a difference. Both of us probably believe that he did, Little Flower. That's become our reality, and we'll factor it into our deliberations. We already have, Norseman.